Welcome back. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com, and this is Insight is Capital. Our very special guest is Dino Bordos, Head of Investment Solutions at Guardian Capital LP. When Dino joined Guardian Capital in 2018, he assumed the role of solutions architect, taking on the responsibility of enhancing Guardian's existing strategies and innovating new ones to support and deepen strategic institutional and retail channel relationships in a nutshell to leverage his extensive market experience. Dino is a seasoned portfolio manager who began his career in 1995 at Canada Trust TD Bank, where he played a pivotal role in the firm's asset growth for 20 years, focusing specifically on derivative overlay, equity index, and structured solutions. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Dino, welcome. It's an honor to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you, Pierre. Dino, for those of us who aren't familiar with you, uh, please fill us in on some of your career highlights, what you feel you did best, and what you're up to these days at Guardian Capital. Perfect. Thanks, Pierre. I'd say that um, the pinnacle of my career is really um, finding solutions to complex issues. And most of my career at, at TD Bank was working with institutional clients like pension plans, insurance uh, companies, endowment funds, and really helping them address certain risks at the total plan level, whether it was dealing with the currency risk or uh, in the case of pension plans, addressing their liability issues and how to hedge some of that interest rate risk in their portfolio. Uh, and then um, more more recently, uh, probably in the last 10 years, funny, recent is uh, all function of yeah. perspective. But um, that's really when I, I made a breakthrough into the retail part of the market, working with advisors. And we wanted to bring some of these innovative risk management techniques uh, to the individual investor. You know, largely this was predicated on the fact that 2008 was just such a devastating time for investors, individual investors. Uh, and for many of them, they had to change their retirement plans. They, they had to potentially work longer, um, change their spending habits, whatever the case may be. And so the, the ask of me was, could we create something that addressed risk management for the individual investor? And we developed a really innovative option strategy at TD. We built it into a, a, a fund that uh, had a lot of success. Um, Fast forward to 2018, I had a great opportunity to join Guardian Capital. One of the unique things about Guardian Capital is that uh, it's, it's such a strong organization. It's been around for 60 years, got a very strong balance sheet. The management uh, is very focused on growth. Uh, and we had already been building franchises around um, global equity franchises with high conviction. And one of the things that I really wanted to parlay my career into is how we can use derivatives with intelligent stock selection or intelligent fixed income portfolio structure. And the opportunity at Guardian really gave me the opportunity to partner with some of our high conviction managers, whether it's on the equity side or on the fixed income side, to continue to evolve the solution set and address right. concerns both in the institutional channel and the retail channel. I'm always impressed with Guardian. I, I think, um, you know, as an, as, a, as an asset manager, there's some amazing things going on uh, within Guardian. Uh, you know, we've had a chance to speak with uh, Sri Iyer uh, several times about how they're employing machine learning and AI 
in uh, the stock selection process on on their uh, on your dividend mandates, and um, and then on the on the uh, you know some of the other innovative solutions is the uh, the Tontine that you launched last year. Um, so I mean it it all syncs up with everything that you're saying. Just uh, you know this is our first time speaking to each other. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to hear, you know, about your role in, in some of those, um, you know, new solutions that, that Guardian has, uh, has brought forward. So in your, in your work, uh, in your, I mean, historically you've, you've been involved in the, in the derivative space, and that's given you a lot of insight into how both the benefits or the pros and cons of, uh, strategies like covered call funds. And um, in your most recent research titled, Is the Yield on Your Covered Call Fund Too High? Which is a really catchy question, <laughs> right? I mean, we had a period where investors were seeking yield for so long. And then the popularity of covered calls really took off right at the end of that cycle. And, and then now, because there's been um, you know, press that questions the sustainability of covered call strategies uh, as though, you know, the press is calling out covered call funds as something that is troublesome. Um, you took it upon yourself to uh, do your part to educate advisors, I think, on the, on the idea that uh, you know, yes, there's some truth in what's being said on the con side, on the side against these strategies, and there's there's all there's also all the things you have to consider on the pros. There's a caveat that all investors should be aware of anyway, with with any of these types of enhanced income strategies, and in particular against the allure of some covered call funds that have extremely high option yield. Yeah, and I just want to be. Claire, it's not so much um, alarming bells on the strategies themselves. It's the expectations, right? What expectation does the client have when they buy a fund uh, that has a very high yield? And so maybe I'll take a step back because I think a lot of the news in the media up until this point, and who knows, maybe I'll take a shift now towards the high yielding uh, covered call strategies. But up until this point, it's really been about, well, covered call strategies lag. Look at the performance over the last 10 years relative to just a, um, right. a pure play, like the underlying stock portfolio. And that's a valid point. But this is not a surprise, Pierre. Like this is, is something that's very well, well understood. It's well documented in empirical research. It's in all the academic literature. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised that when markets are going parabolic, like they basically have been for the last 10 years, uh, that a strategy that sells away some upside for the certainty of premium will potentially lag. Now, right. I, I took a study further back, though. It's fine to say, oh, in the last 10 years, look how bad they've done. Well, let's take a study back to 20 years or 30 years. And what you'll find is that in an environment where we have a more normal interest rate environment, for example, not zero interest rate policy with tons of stimulative monetary ease like we've experienced. And an environment where volatility was more normal, not at basement levels like they were in 2015, 16, 17, and 18. So let's take those normal environments, which arguably we're potentially entering into going forward uh, as, as a regime. And what you'll see in those environments, Pierre, is that the cover cost strategies actually perform quite well, even on a relative basis to the, um, 
to the standalone equity portfolio. So that's really meant to just address this point around, oh, well, they lag. Yes, in a very strong equity market environment where volatilities are low and there's a lot of monetary stimulus and the Fed is basically insuring the market, there's truth to that. But what yeah. environment are we entering into? The second point, which is the research touched on, is, uh, is the yield. And I'd say that even with the yield, I want to be cautious because I'm not here to uh, um, uh, dismiss any strategy. It's really about saying, what is the client's objective? If the client needs, say, a 12% cash flow from their portfolio, and a cover call strategy is able to deliver some tax-efficient yield as a result of that, what is the client getting, right? And so at the end of the yeah. day, at the end of the day, we know that mathematically, and this is not uh, me making things up, mathematically, uh, you have a portfolio. So let's assume it's $100,000. You want to generate $12,000 a year on it, so the 12% yield is ideal. But if you're only generating 5 or 6% total return, total return on that portfolio, then where's the other 6% coming from? And my, my research concludes that the other 6% is coming from your capital. So you're basically getting return of capital, which is fine as long as you intended to get return of capital as part of that process. And what happens with that over time is you erode your capital. And that has a, a, a bit of a double whammy. One is uh, you don't have $100,000 anymore. Very quickly, that $100,000 initial capital, if you're drawing 12% on something that's only earning six, will right. fall to $50,000. And then that 12,000 that you're hoping to generate each year on 100,000 is only being generated on 50,000. So that's 6,000. So I'm just, it's just about creating awareness, right? And being um, pragmatic with your expectations. Right. And so, you know, we feel that it's prudent for people to understand, you know, what the mechanics are that are going into these strategies and what they should expect. And so there's no, you know, misconceptions. The last thing we want, and this is something that I hold very true to my heart because for most of my career, I had to sit in front of pension boards and I would basically commit a certain experience one year and the next year I had to go defend that experience. And I just see that depending on what's being committed yeah. as far as an experience uh, with these high-yielding ETFs, and again, I don't want to uh, misbeat because I, I don't know all the angles that are or all the um, disclaimers that are being provided to investors. Uh, how are you going to be able just to justify that experience a year from now? And that's why it's important to make sure people understand uh, the implications of that. Yeah, I, I think for advisors, it's really important. You know, I mean, being an advisor is all about setting expectation. You know, part of a, a big part of being an advisor is setting expectations correctly and then delivering on them or, you know, working to deliver on those expectations uh, you, so depending on how realistic your expectations are of the market and return uh, will determine how successful you are in the relationship with the client. Um, so setting, setting expectations realistically, like what you're saying reminds me of, I, I know, you know, we, we, we talked about it in our um, pre-chat, but what, what, what you're talking about reminds me of, you know, mutual funds and systematic withdrawal plans where, you know, you could set any amount of payment against the mutual fund holding. And so long as that mutual fund was outpacing the withdrawal uh, on a compounded basis, the investor could hope to receive 
uh, you know, a, an income that was planned as opposed to haphazard, you know, whatever the yields are. Um, and so that made it possible to create retirement plans for investors uh, when that when that innovation was available. Um, but if you're in a if you're in a mutual fund or a fund or any investment and you're expecting to get more income from it than it can possibly return, then what you're saying makes total sense. I mean that that to me is an analogous with what you're saying is that is that the return expectation the the income and total return expectation is unrealistic if the investment itself is not yielding more than what it's paying. Yep. It's not growing by more than what it's yielding. Correct. Is, is, is maybe the correct way to say it. Um, yeah, maybe another way. The yield that's being advertised yeah. doesn't equal the total return of the strategy in most cases. So I'm like... If if you look at the dynamics the way that you described it, and I hope I'm not wrong in 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 uh, the way I'm asking you, the option yield that so a covered call fund let's say has an option yield of five percent six percent. How much of that option yield gets back to the investor? And and is is the payment is the distribution that's being made in some covered call funds where high option income or high enhanced income is being advertised, is it in excess of what the fund is actually making, or uh, and how much of the I mean how much of that is the actual option yield and how much of that is the return of capital? Yeah, well, uh, uh, it depends. I guess it's, unfortunately the answer is very um, subjective. Yeah. But I'll give you an example, because I think uh, we can be very objective with a, with a benchmark index. So we know that the CBOE has launched some indices that are uh, buy right indices. There's been a lot of criticism of their main index, the BXM. So they rolled out a second one called the BXMH, which is only right. overwriting on half. Even that one has some criticism, but let's just treat it as a base case. Uh, I studied that index from the uh, 19, from 1999 to earlier this year. Um, I compared that return to the S&P 500. So not surprisingly, because from 1999 till about 2011, 2012, you know, Mario Draghi's famous moment, whatever it takes, yeah. uh, the cover call strategy outperformed. Not surprisingly, we had a lot of volatility, market was up and down. Um, we were able to capture a decent amount of premium relative to um, relative to the, uh, to, to the total return. Subsequent to that moment where we saw ultra-stimulative monetary policy and uh, incredibly low interest rates, what happened, and volatility was falling as well, what happened there is um, we're still capturing, you know, 5 6% premium, but it became harder. It becomes harder to generate that premium when volatility is low or when forward pricing doesn't work in your favor. And this is a more complex issue, but there's a lot of factors that go into And so let's say that um, conservatively, you generate five, 6% of option premium, uh, and we're in a very, very strong rising market. Well, you're leaving money on the table. Uh, and depending on the frequency in which you're writing those options, you reset that cap every time, every time you roll over. Now, one of the things that I think perhaps is missed is that markets don't just go up in straight lines. They zigzag. 
right? We know this, this is just right. the nature of uh, human behavior and, and how that trend transcends into market price behavior. And so if each time you're, you're lagging on the upside and in the next period, the market's down and you're taking all that market downside and then resetting a cap above that reference level and getting capped out on the next up move, all those compounded losses will basically accrue. So in that scenario, like the period from 2012 on, you were generating five or six, but maybe you were forfeiting three or four or five or six percent upside uh, participation and then participating in losses. So, you know, I think that, again, it's, it's hard to answer that specifically because it, it, right. it, there's so many variables that will impact that. But um, uh, the, the, that's why I think we need to go back to what's the total portfolio return. Here, I can tell you um, very easily that I could engineer virtually any yield you want out of a covered call strategy. Right. Um, but that doesn't necessarily translate into the, what the total return is going to be in the portfolio, right? And I think that comes back to the point where uh, if I write options on very, very volatile stocks and I write them at very close to the prevailing price and I do them fairly frequently every couple of weeks or every month, I'm going to accrue a very, very large option premium from that. But uh, what's happening to the dynamics of the stock's exposure into the portfolio may be very different. And so that's why I think it's important to uh, not only look at the yield in isolation, it's important right. to look at what's total return. So back to my analogy, the example on the research we did. So the BXMH had an annualized return from 1999 to 2023 of about 5.5%. The S&P 500 over the same period, because the BXM's on the S&P 500, had an annualized return of 6.5%. So the, the, you know, the, what the media has been talking about is real. There was a lag in performance, right. but you know, presumably the investors were buying that for the tax efficient yield. So they're willing to sacrifice some return for that persistency and high level tax efficient yield. Now, if on that same strategy, you were uh, taking say a 5% distribution, then your capital was going to roughly stay the same between 1999 and 2023, but you collected that. $5,000 a year or whatever uh, on that 5% distribution. Right. Once you start ratcheting up that distribution to eight, to 10, to 12, well, it's generating five and a half percent. Yeah. Well, you know where the other part of the money's coming from. It's got to come your, from your principal. And yeah. So, so, you know, just to interrupt you in that, in your first example where, you know, you, you have uh, income of 5% and you maintain the same value for the entire duration. Um, that's the equivalent of getting a 5% interest or 5% capital gains distribution on, you know, like a savings bond type instrument. It, right. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you compare total return to, to the, uh, the outlay of the fund in terms of income to, to investors, um, you end up, you end up flat. Yeah. In fairness, um, in fairness, the sequence of return risks that you were talking yeah. about, I uh, can't remember if it was the last conversation or a few years ago today, but it's not always going to be 100,000, right? That will fluctuate. Yeah. So when we think about what happened in the early part of 2000 with the tech wreck and then the global financial crisis, that will undulate. But uh, in the fullness of time... And so it's like the, treading water. Yeah, you'll see It's like that treading water out at sea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you may dip yeah. below 100, right. but you might get up above 100 when markets continue to improve. So... Um, all that being said, I, I think that um, looking at the yield in isolation uh, could be risky. Now, yield is going to be an important part of the distribution 
to the investor because um, depending on how the manager is managing the portfolio, um, if it turns out that 100% of the distribution is coming in the form of option premium, set aside this issue around what are you getting return to capital or let's assume that the return was 12% in that particular year and you generated 12% of premium. That 12% is extraordinarily tax efficient in the hands of the taxable investor. I mean, I'm a proponent of this. I use it extensively in my personal portfolio. Right. Um, and so when I can get a, a distribution, even comparable to fixed income at five, five and a half percent and only pay tax at the highest marginal rate on half of it versus paying 100% of my highest marginal tax rate on the full amount, that's pretty significant. And I think that's really the, uh, the big, big value proposition of, of the uh, tax efficient yield that comes from these cover cost strategies. The key is not to just look at yields in isolation. It's to look at the, the, the most important factor is what are you investing in? Yes. Not what yield are you getting? I mean, the yield is secondary. It's the, it's the underlying asset that matters. Is, does it have a chance of producing the returns over the time so that it sustains the payment that you're receiving? I think there's this idea, as you said, you can take any asset and monetize it, monetize its volatility if you want. You know, you, you can engineer a portfolio to do that. But what, what still matters at the end is the fundamentals of the portfolio. Is the portfolio able to create the, the accretion, the accumulation of, of wealth over time, as opposed to just being there uh, as something you feed off of? But you, in order to be able to feed off the asset and get that income to monetize the, uh, the, the volatility from that income, the, the asset has to have a, a, a chance to grow as well. Yeah, I like that point, Pierre. I think it's so important uh, because. Let's, let's stick to the fundamentals. Does the allocation in the underlying asset class even make sense strategically for your portfolio? And then uh, with regards to the asset class, is it an exposure that you desire? Like there's a lot of great cover call ETFs out there. Some that yeah. cover the bank sector, some that cover the healthcare sector, some that are based on fundamentals that cover a global uh, portfolio with, with quality growth uh, companies that are um, brand leaders. And so you know, this right. is, this is the, uh, such an important point. I, and I got to believe that the advisor community is thinking about that first. And I, I just hope that uh, with some of the newer products that have come to market, they don't um, almost approach it from a rose class, a rose colored glasses perspective of, oh, look how rich this yield is. I can't get yeah. this anywhere else. Quite frankly, you can do a SWIP and take whatever amount you want. Exactly. And, and, uh, so um, should just be wary of that. I just, you know, it's really about, Again, back to the basics, let's create I think, awareness. I, I, I think given the, the choice, you know, a lot of investors will go for the investment they understand better first than, than you know, something that seems uh, on the outside esoteric at all. But if you're willing, like, for example, like maybe the way to approach this discussion is like, if you're, if you, if you like and are interested in investing in, a particular strategy or a sector. I think if, if you like a strategy already, like for example, like the easiest one that to maybe an easy one to point to is the bank stocks. If you're a Canadian investor, chances are you already own them and they're a core position and they're a core equity position. But 
we might be entering a period where those payments, the dividend payments uh, and the growth aren't enough, but you still want to continue to own them. Right. I think I, I think this is a great point, Pierre. And, and you know the work we've done with Morsh Malevsky on the retirement uh, strategies and so forth. Right. Um, we do see that as being a big transition, right? As investors move from the accumulation part of their career into their retirement part of their career, and now they need to start drawing on their capital. Um, you know, maybe there's some strategies that they may think don't fit anymore. It's like, for example, we have a very successful uh, global. Uh, high conviction quality growth strategy managed by our team out of the UK, GuardCap. And it's performed marvelously. And for many people, they view that as a cornerstone of their accumulation portfolio, the portfolio they're going to invest in for the long term to grow their wealth. But when they pivot to retirement, do they abandon it because it doesn't pay yeah. a distribution? And so really, you know, that's what we did at Guardian. That was one of the innovations that we created is if this strategy ticks boxes for the type of exposures you want to be invested in and you trusted it for all those years in your accumulation uh, period of growth, why not continue to invest in those great companies and use an option covered call strategy right. to now generate income on that very tax efficient income and do it in a prudent way, right? Like this is the point, like we're going to use discipline approaches and be pragmatic. So in that particular strategy, as an example, we pay six or 7% yield. And in the four and a half years that we've been live, We've, we've increased the value of the portfolio because we buy great companies that have better than average earnings growth. We're exactly. sensible about where we're writing the calls. And we're, we've set a distribution rate that we believe will be able to be sustainable uh, into the future. And, and so that's, you know, that, that's one approach in how uh, we think covered call strategies are being integrated is really to address this, this transition period of people going from their um, working years, growing their wealth, to moving into the part of their life where they're actually going to have to live off of the assets they've grown. And yeah. we don't want certain assets to be displaced because they don't fit, you know, what you might want from the retirement part of your portfolio if yield is something that you, that you desire. There may be some applications of, of cover call strategies um, during the accumulation phase, maybe to supplement income if you have children that you need to you know, right. supplement for education and that sort of thing. So. Uh, there's, there's, you know, people have needs for cash flow at all different points in their life. And perhaps even during when they're growing their wealth, they may still need cash flow. So cover call strategies can be attractive there. They can be attractive when you think we're going to enter into a, like a, a slower growth environment. Again, that's why I think that when you think about where we are today uh, from a, a, an economic cycle perspective and uh, what we could potentially expect to see as far as economic growth and volatility and performance from uh, companies globally, uh, perhaps it's going to be slower than what it was in the last 10 years. I mean, the last 10 years were very, very unique. In fact, there's been some great studies and maybe Sharice shared some of these with you, but right. when you look at the proportion of the total return that has come from dividends, as an example, relative to um, valuations and earnings growth, it's at all-time lows. Like dividends represent such a small proportion of the total return. And that's largely because we've seen valuations explode with low interest rates. We've seen earnings momentum completely charge higher. But if we do get into a regime where, uh, where growth rates are going to be slower and volatility is going to be higher, and we're not going to get all the stimulus from the government and, and the central bankers, then cover call strategies may on a relative basis also play a useful role because they might perform in, you know, in line or better 
in those types of environments, similar to what we saw in the early part of the 2000s. The tax issue is an important one, though. If you're looking to accumulate wealth, you want to pay the least amount of tax in the intro. And a lot of these covered call strategies do pay a distribution because of the, the, the premium that they're generating. Uh, one other use case, but which is to your, to your point, to yeah. your point, sorry, and I'll let you, to yeah. your point, I think, I think uh, I like I, I, the idea of getting paid while you wait is also very enticing. Well, so if we're entering a slow, a slow period for, you know, any part of the, any part of the market, um, it, it, it could make sense to move laterally from what you are, like from say something you already own to something similar, but with a covered call overlay. Yeah. I think we're, we're potentially at the, uh, you know, at the beginning of a much slower uh, growth period. And I think uh, with heightened volatility, this could be attractive. One other use case that I, I wanted to share with you and yeah. uh, it's personal to me because um, I've employed it for a number of years now um, is a wealth creation strategy. You know, it's a little bit more difficult than today's environment because um, funding rates have gotten significantly higher. But when you can basically get um, free money, why not exploit it? Right. And, and so, you know, again, personal to me is my wife and I decided that we had a lot of equity in our home and it was just sitting idly. And so we're not, you know, we're not real estate moguls and we're about to buy a bunch of rental properties. That wasn't our DNA. But I said, wait a minute, I'm in the investment industry. I'm managing cover call strategies. Maybe there's something we can do with that. So I borrowed money at sub 2%. I invest mm -hmm. in the cover call strategy, which is the gro global growth strategy with cover calls, pays out a 6 to 7%, very tax efficient distribution, and it funds the mortgage. So I'm creating wealth. <laughs> I'm creating yeah. wealth. The interest right. is tax deductible. Um, it covers all the tax that I need to pay the government. And it's a bit accretive in the end. Anyway, so there's other applications could be used as a really useful wealth creation right. strategy if you need to self-fund it. Much like people buy real estate properties to have it self-fund uh, the, the wealth creation there. So, um, yeah. So that's, that's exciting, actually, Dino. I mean, that, <laughs> that's a pretty exciting idea, which is yeah. just to, you know, to use the carry on the... Yeah, uh, you know, on the on the on the investment to to pay for the money and keep yeah. the difference. Yeah, a little bit a little bit harder today, like I said, because yeah. your mortgages yeah. are, are much higher. But when rates do normalize again, and um, I have until August twenty twenty five, so hopefully they come in again, so I can punt this out another five years, and it'll still be accretive. I, I think that yeah. it makes a lot of sense. So, Dino, what are the ideal conditions for covered call fund strategies? Like, wh when when is the best? When are the ideal conditions? And and what's and and then consequently, you know, conversely, what's what are some not so ideal times to do that? Yeah, I, I think it's really a relative question, right? When you say when is the best condition, uh, what's the objective? If the objective was tax efficient income because uh, you're in decumulation and you like the underlying investments you're in, any time is the right condition, right? Because you need but when you're comparing it on a relative basis to being so in when the they, yeah, stocks, when do they work best? Yeah, when, when they're relative to the stock portfolio, you generally want um, a less parabolic type market where mar where the stocks are just flying up by ten and twenty percent a month, like we saw in many cases in the last few years. Right. Uh, you want to see volatility that's um, moderate, like uh, you, the VIX index has been as low as 
single digits in the last uh, 10 years. Now it's more in uh, mid double digits, like 15%, 16%. So right. you want a reasonable amount of implied volatility. Um, and those environments where uh, the market's rising, but not rising so parabolic and volatility is reasonable and you're getting a, a decent amount of option premium. Uh, relative to being invested in the underlying stocks, call strategies will actually hold up extraordinarily well and will actually outpace some cases, depending on how dynamic the option overriding is uh, on the individual stocks. I'd say that um, some of the trade-offs uh, in the individual stock world, there is opportunities to exploit idiosyncratic volatility with regards to stocks. That does get lost to some extent when you go into blended indices. Um, higher volatile indices will have higher implied volatility, lower implied right. volatility indices will have lower implied volatility. So um, it really depends. Is it, what pockets of the market are you, are you, uh, are you in? It will give you different opportunities. Uh, we, uh, we decided, again, this was a transition for me. TD was almost exclusively index options. Uh, coming to Guardian, it's been 100% on single stock options. Uh, I so many more opportunities in the single stock world. Are there times when, I, I, I mean, maybe these are just short-term questions, you know, like deciding whether to write or not to write, but that's, that's more of a strategic, that's more of a tactical question. What about being in a covered call strategy when markets are tanking? Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's all about what you're going to do next, right? So yeah. covered call strategies when markets are going down will absolutely give you a cushion. They will provide some cushion on the outside. Let's come back to the to the relative performance. Like even these high yielding ETFs in a declining market for uh, the underlying investment strategy are going to outperform relative to the underlying strategy. This is a different point, right? It's not about the payout ratio. This is about performance. So right. the you, so definitely cover cost strategy when the underlying asset is declining will provide a cushion because you're collecting the cash flow and there's a low likelihood that you're going to get called away. You still probably have a negative return, potentially, depending on how much premium you generate and how negative the market is, but it'll preserve capital. Problem is, is that eventually the market reverses. And this kind of ties into the, I think where you're going with your question around the short-term tactical discussion, which I also have thought a lot about. And I think that when you're mechanical and you have a very index-like um, behavior in implementing the strategy, you do potentially give up good opportunities or you lock yourself into opportunities where you rather not in them. Right. And so, um, yeah, sometimes it doesn't make sense to write cover calls or sometimes um, it still makes sense to write cover calls because volatility is elevated, but you want to give yourself a much higher uh, buffer on the, top, on, on the upside. You know, set your cap much further out. And so when you're locked into, say, a, a certain percentage uh, above the prevailing market on a certain calendar frequency, you lose those opportunities. And I think that's, uh, I think that's kind of where you're going with your question with the short-term tactical. I think you need to be active. Like the option overlay strategy, yeah. uh, if you want to be um, passive, yeah, the BXM, uh, the CBOE has already solved it for you. And, the, and a number of other providers have built their own rules-based approaches. Just understand them, right? But uh, with the, pro the, the approach that we've taken is we want to be active in the security portfolio that we invest in. So let's buy the highest conviction names that's well-researched and have delivered extraordinarily results over very long time periods. And then with the call optional strategy, uh, the call overlay strategy, 
let's make sure that we're not just blindly setting uh, strikes that uh, could very easily be taken out. So by background, I'm a technician as well as a CFA. Yeah. So I do a lot of uh, technical diagnosis on each one of the securities every week. So there's simple stuff like trend lines and channels, and retracement levels and that sort of thing. But then you can get into some more complicated things like the Fibonacci levels. And uh, when markets do really get beaten up, where are the natural resistance levels that markets could potentially go yeah. to? And so, you know, the reality is we get called away as well. I mean, we don't have crystal balls. As, well, as we it's know. not risk-free. It's not a risk-free endeavor. Yeah, um, we try to be prudent yeah. and, and, and pragmatic in how we implement. And we don't have to write the call at all sometimes because we just don't feel the reward is there. You know, we're, we're in an interesting time from an economic perspective. Our, our philosophy continues to be buy great companies that can continue to grow. And uh, yes, they may be impacted by systemic market issues from time to time. But if you truly believe that the company can continue to grow its earnings on a, on a above average uh, level over time and has a mode around their business and can continue to defend that and, and can innovate in that, then that's the key driver to returns, soft returns. So yeah, we're going to see lots of volatility, most likely in the next several years. We're going through so many transitions. We're going from globalism to protectionism. We're going from low interest rates to high interest rates. Uh, we're going from peace to war. Like there's going to be disruptions in the market, but great companies tend to, to, to tend to weather that storm. And to the extent that cash flow is an important part of your strategy for your client, where they are in their life cycle, cover call strategies will make a lot of sense. Uh, they're very tax efficient from a distribution perspective. Uh, you do want to, you know, lean towards a strategy that is more dynamic because you don't want to be subject to the whims of, of a very rigid rebalancing process. And, um, uh, over time, I think that as long as it's aligned with the objectives and you manage the expectations accordingly, this could be a fantastic experience for the investor and, and for your clients. Dino, thank you so much for your incredibly valuable time. It's, it's been quite a conversation, right? <laughs> yeah, thank you, Pierre. This has been uh, fun for me as well.